0: Today's episode is sponsored by Moyo Mysteries. Moyo Mysteries offers spiritual consultations, pelvic steam plans, and full-spectrum birth work services, from fertility and birth and labor to loss and bereavement and abortion work. Moyo Mysteries also offers a variety of educational projects and upcoming trainings. To learn more, you can visit www.moyomysteries.org, that's www.m-o-y-o-m-y-s-t-e-r-i-e-s.org. Also, follow on Facebook and Instagram under the name Loya Mysteries. Let's start the show.
1: Who
2: plants, mamas? Get your soul fed and your spirit red.
0: This here and the trend, I possessed the power from way back when. Back when folk was ripped from back all of their skin, skin, so they had to, to find the magic within. Ancestors, they gather my earth.
1: Chow, we just out here trying to water
2: our plants and mind our business, you know. Everybody from the deep south, man. Everybody can have a culture like us.
0: Hey, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of Hoodoo Plant Mamas. I am your host, Leah Nicole. And I'm Danny B. <laughs> and today we get to talk to Crystal Wilkinson, who's the author of multiple books, but most recently, Perfect Black. But before we get into that, Danny B,
2: how are you doing? How are you holding up? I'm actually doing really good, and I like surprised myself by saying I'm doing really good, but compared to how I've been doing, I feel like I'm getting a bit more balanced emotionally things aren't perfect but um I gotta say I'm probably going to keep reiterating this that like art my art this podcast my friends just reset me in ways that I need and I feel like I've just been receiving a lot of love particularly from my friends in different ways and it's just it's helped me a lot with You know, this journey, this Saturn return, and all the other things I'm, you know, battling. So, yeah, I'm so thankful to be feeling good today. Sorry to like jump into gratitude, but that's where I am today. (laughs)
0: Yeah, that's really great that you are feeling good today. I have also kind of had this sort of shift. I know last episode I was like, I had a bad week because I did have a bad week. Um, But I really had to just, you know, take a break and sit down and really um, prioritize some things, set some boundaries. Something that I have been wanting to do more of is go out in nature. And for those who don't know, I live right now, I live um, in a Florida coastal city and the beach near me is overrun by red tide because our governor is a megalomaniac. And I had to like drive, (laughs) I had to drive like an hour and a half to go to the nearest beach that didn't have red tie, but it was such a great experience. Like, I just remember the whole weekend before, like my whole body just wanted me to be in the water. And I just, because usually pre-COVID, I was at the beach like once a month. And while I, yes, I do know like the beach is a quote unquote safer place than being inside. Um, I'm still paranoid, but yeah, so I'm trying to, I'm trying to get back out in nature more. I'm trying to slow down. I'm trying to set boundaries around my routine, um, and trying to incorporate more breaks. Cause my motto lately is, you know, the world won't end if I don't finish this thing today. So there's always tomorrow.
2: Amen. Oh, I love just... The self patience. I think we all need to get better with having patience with ourselves, and also just saying "fuck it" sometimes. Fuck until yeah. tomorrow. <laughs> well, let's get into some gratitude. Uh, what are you thankful for today? I rarely ever have
0: gratitude for men, but I am. <laughs> I'm grateful for my roommate. He's been very gracious with me and very patient with me and he's been the one who's been encouraging me to like take breaks and he's like hey if this thing isn't done you can just do it tomorrow or you don't even have to do it (laughs) and just to constantly have like his support
2: has been very helpful to me so I'm grateful for that what are you grateful for um, yeah, I guess to reiterate what I was saying during the check-in, grateful for art, grateful for this podcast and the people we get to talk to, um, grateful for my friends and I'm grateful for the, the. I'm thankful for grief, what grief teaches us, um, especially with letting go. And I've been that I feel like grief is the theme of my life, and maybe that's all a part of the Saturn return. Um, I saw a tweet yesterday about how in hoodoo and any kind of ATR, the sacrifice and offerings isn't just doesn't look just one way. Sometimes a sacrifice is letting go of things that don't serve you, letting go of things that your ancestors. Or God or whoever is a part of your spiritual, um, you know, your spiritual team. (laughs) If you see that this is not something you need in your life, if it's not aligned, you have to relinquish it. And there's a lot of grief that comes with that. There's also a lot of freedom. Yeah, I'm just, I'm here. I'm thankful that I'm feeling good today. And, you know, it's, I might not be feeling, that might change tomorrow and the next hour. But in this moment, I'm like, yeah, we good. And I ain't been good in a while. So I'm happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. So here's some ways to support Hoodoo Plant Mamas. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Hoodoo Plants and Instagram at Plant Mamas. You can also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. To monetarily support our podcast, you can join our Patreon. We have a $2 tier for those who want to give every month to show support. Our $5 all-access tier includes monthly mini solds, tarot readings, and plant content. If you prefer a one-time donation, you can give any amount you want on our Cash App at $Hoodoo Plant Mamas or PayPal, hoodooplantmamas at gmail.com. If you're interested in sponsoring
0: an episode, you can email us at hoodooplantmamas at gmail.com. We especially want to work with Black, Indigenous, POC-owned, and queer-owned businesses. But if you're a white business wanting to support the work of two Black women, we'll take that too. And we also want to give a shout out to Michael Michelle Pratt for including our podcast in their Vogue article, Processing Grief Through the the Afro-Indigenous Practices, Hoodoo and Ifa." Thank you for that. Um, That was such a happy surprise. If anyone is interested in profiling us and featuring our podcast, feel free to reach out to us at whodouplantmamas at gmail.com. Let's get into this interview. So today we are joined um, by
1: Crystal Wilkinson. Would you like to introduce yourself and your work? Uh, sure. (laughs) I'm, uh, Crystal Wilkinson. I have written, this is my fourth book. Perfect Black is my fourth book. And it's my first collection of poetry. Um, my other books, Blackberries, Blackberries, Water Street, uh, and the Birds of Opulence are all fiction, uh, with the first two being, uh, collections of short stories and the Birds of Opulence being a novel. And then I guess everything else will sort of come out while we talk, but, um, you all know, and your audience can probably tell from my accent that I am from Kentucky. Uh, yeah. Always been from Kentucky, carry that on my tongue. So,
2: I also want to add, not to like put you on the spot, but also the poet laureate of Kentucky. Are you the first Black woman? Yes,
1: yes, I am the first first Black woman poet laureate of Kentucky.
2: Yes, and a host of other um, accolades under her belt too many to list. Um, So I won't put you too much on the spot, but I did want to acknowledge that because that's such a big deal and so important. So a lot of what we emphasize on the show is as a part of our podcast is hoodoo. And a lot of that is about ancestor work, ancestor veneration. That's one of the most important components of the tradition. Um, And I think ancestor veneration is not exclusive to like the altar kind of traditional altar with pictures and candles and with perfect black weaved into this memoir, I feel like there was a lot of ancestor work happening, a lot of references to ancestors channeling the voices of ancestors, such as your grandfather. I think your grandfather in water Mm -hmm. in the water, witch poems. And so I really want to talk about or ask you, how have your ancestors impacted your work? Um including with and you can bring in your other books as well, but like what what does that process look like of kind of bringing your ancestors um into your work in this way?
1: Well, I think the, the the my maturation as a writer has turned to the ancestors, you know, I was interviewed the other day and someone said, so who is your audience? And um sometimes when people ask me that question, it I don't know, it sort of startles me, but when I think about it, the ancestors are. My audience, even before a sort of general, alive Black audience, the ancestors, because I feel like that, um, particularly with these last two books, with the Birds of Opulence and then with this book, that that's what I'm doing is trying to honor uh, in this book, Imperfect Black, more directly, uh, my, my ancestors and in uh, the Birds of Opulence, sort of the ancestors of my characters, which by extension are honoring my ancestors too. So that sort of idea, that sort of African concept of Sankofa, the idea of of reaching back, um, knowing where you come from in order to know where you're going, um, is a big, heavy theme in all my work, I think.
2: Everybody has like a different process. So do you have any rituals that you do when you're like, because it feels so in my mind, just as a writer, it feels so strenuous to have to be engaging with your ancestors, to have to write a story in their voice. Um, so do you have any rituals as part of that process?
1: Um, I think that that is just where, you know, I, I love uh, and still love Ernest Gaines. And, uh, and we talked about Gail Jones earlier, too. And I think both of them, it's... Uh, when they're working, it's always sort of reaching back and paying homage. And so, so what I what I do is what I feel like that they do and did. Uh, and Mr. Gaines has, has talked about this. He said that every time he writes um, a kitchen scene or a, a woman in the kitchen, he thinks of of his auntie that raised him first, and then he layers on the fiction. And so, I think as a fiction writer, um, that's kind of what I do every. Um, I write a lot of natural landscapes, so every every creek, every uh, yard, every stream, every wild animal, uh, the hollers—all of that is based on my uh, experience, uh, and so are the people. I think I, I start with the people that I knew or know, and then layer on a fic- on fiction for a more broader, universal experience. Um, and I think you know, Perfect Black, because it is uh, a memoir in in poems, is uh, much closer to the bone, right? So it's much more of of a direct sort of uh, divination of my of my ancestors, going all the way back to um, Aggie, who's the furthest ancestor that I could find, and you know, I found enough of her to. Not enough of her to build her lived experience, but I found enough of her um, to visualize her as a real woman and to um, to imagine what her life must have been like. And so that was a, a big um, eye-opening experience. And I talk about that in one of the pieces. And it really happened that way that I was, um, you know, I sort of dived into this naively and said, OK, I'm going to write. Uh, I can, I know everything about my grandmother. I know everything about my mama, Uh, my great grandmother I can grab for because of the stories my grandmother told. And then the further I went back, of course, the less and less I knew. And then when I found Aggie, grandma Aggie in a court document uh, where she was listed as Aggie of color, uh, I was at a writing retreat in Florida and my whole top of my head blew off. I, I sort of, ran out when I found her and found everything that I could about her and started, um, writing things down. Um, the line, I hear my mother calling my name, but not in your language came to me and I just ran out the door and walked along the beach as fast as I could crying and, uh, came back and started writing about her. And, uh, that sort of, physical emotional experiences is is sort of what I've had to go through even with my own grandmother um of writing this book and I think perfect black is sort of a stepping stone that's the book that I'm in now because it was just just came out a couple weeks ago but it's sort of a stepping stone to my next book which is uh, an even deeper exploration of those ancestors so um I think it's a, a mental process and it's even a physical process like I have Feel like that, um, you know, you think about it, and I think we sort of romanticize uh, this intersection with the ancestors, but it's hard work, um, it's emotional work, it's uh, physically hard work.
2: Yes, thank you. I'm glad you said that because I want people to know <laughs> it's not easy.
0: Yeah, um, I'm kind of excited for this next book because I did love Perfect Black, I love how you wrote about Black girlhood. And within the first few pages, you wrote about being from a Christian community and being baptized. And you wrote, but I didn't feel holiness. Wasn't even exactly sure what holy was. Just did the expected. Uh, Which I definitely felt as a teen growing up in the Bible Belt. And for me, I kind of used that gap between how people told me I should be and who I actually was to kind of overcompensate so, yeah. And then in did, if you will, the picture you wrote about being 16 and you wrote about being horny, which I definitely understand. So I'm wondering how you were able to navigate those feelings of not being holy in this Christian community, but also having these very normal, but stigmatized
1: teenage hormones. Mm. Um, That was difficult. You know, it yeah. was um. And then if you add, and I and I write about it, you add the sort of uh sexual abuse on top of that mm-hmm. that was was happening to me. It was a very confusing time. Like I constantly, um when I referenced my my growing up and what I was supposed to do in our Christian community, I just constantly thought I was going to hell, like always. I was just like, okay. Today is it, and I had a very and probably because I was an imaginative person, but also, I think that's just how some of those Christian communities that's just like my community was was strict. and I literally went through my first whole first year of college thinking everything, I, you know, just constantly. I was so shocked and so much like a fish out of water and had lived in such a protected naive way that I just thought, All y'all going to hell? I'm going to hell, and (laughs) you know, the first time I had sex willingly, I I literally I didn't write about this and but I should and I will. I literally thought that my grandmother and God were going to come through the ceiling. Like at that moment, there was no pleasure in that moment. I just thought, oh my God, this is it. They're going here. They come hand in hand. (laughs) You know, this is it. I'm going straight to hell at this moment. And so that's that was, uh, you know, it was just damaging. And not as an adult, I can think about that. That's not what religion was supposed to be about. But the fear uh, was so much of what it was about for me as a teenager.
2: I heard that on the thinking your grandma and God was going to come get you because my grandma is still living, but she also is like also like a when I was. All through my teens and stuff, I, you know, I snuck and did some stuff, but she was always looming over me as like, I'm not going to do that because some way, somehow my grandma is going to find out. Like she was up there with God as far as, <laughs> as far as like, I just feel like she gonna know. It doesn't matter. Yeah,
1: I just envisioned them hand in hand. They holding hands, a dual force, like coming, busting through the dorm room. Like here they come.
2: That's exact. That's been my life forever. So I, I really felt that. Um, I really resonated with On Being Country. Um, and of course I love the conversation you and Kiese had. I feel like I've shared so many of those experience of like shame around my accent. Um, I haven't figured out how to make it go away. I thought that was. I still haven't figured out how to take the Mississippi out of my voice. During your talk with Kiese Y'all talked about the different types of country And Kiese mentioned how Kentucky country Felt similar to Mississippi country In some ways And I agree Because I remember the first time I met Minda who is also a writer from Kentucky And I told her That the first thing I remembered About her was how how loud And country her laugh was And how I liked that Because it was familiar Um, And so (laughs) this poem reminded me of like our dialects how even our dialects and the way we talk keep us connected to our ancestors which you sort of get to in this poem Um, and you say it's the makeup of my spirit country is as much a part of me as my full lips my wide hips my dreadlocks my high cheekbones the way words roll off my tongue is the voice of my people I needed this I've been needing that all my life. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like? Basically, I saw this poem as you sort of talking about returning to yourself and your roots um, after all of the shame around being country, being from Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what that was like?
1: Yeah. And it's an ongoing fight, right? So even still, all these years later, you know, I still... um, well, code switch like we all like we all do. It's uh, you know sometimes I just don't want to have to answer that question that I've had to answer my whole life, which is, you know, where are you from? <laughs> where are you from? You know, you get that, and um, I've tried to embrace it like a banner now. When I when I begin to explain that, it's not it's not as much of a a stigma. I don't see country as much as a a cuss word as it used to be. I take that and hopefully have flipped it around and see that as a sense of pride, because it is, we should be proud of that. You know, that's, that's something that's ancestral too. That's uh part of our culture. Um, and uh, I've just tried to uh, embrace it. And it was sort of leaving home and um, trying out new voices. I can still do it. You know, I can still uh, change my voice to where I don't have to talk about where I, where I don't get that question. And sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. Um, and I sort of pick and choose now, uh, when to turn it on or turn it off. Uh, but it's always there. Like you said, it's always there. And it's just like, um, fighting against your, your natural state. And in that, in that point, I say my tongue, I allowed my tongue to return to the it's natural state. And, um, and that's what I do when I get around somebody who, and that's probably why I relate so much to Key too. is because he is, is country and I can hear it and I can feel it. And I'm like, okay, whew, all right, I'm home. Uh, and I can hear it, hear it in your voice as well. That there's something up familiar. And I do it at work. You know, I'm always, you know, I'm a professor, but You can catch me um, with the cleaning crew or with the people in the lunchroom because they're the ones that have the thickest accent. And I'm like, here's my people. My people are over here. Or in the doctor's office, I can spot, my head will spin all the way around. I can hear, pick up a country accent from across the room. And I'm like, (laughs) there's my people. And I used to embarrass my children. They were like, oh my goodness, there she goes again. And then if I talk to somebody from home, then I get twangier and twangier until my accent matches theirs and my kids are like, oh, my God, there she goes. My husband does that, too. Like, who are you talking to? Like, if I'm talking to my cousin on the phone, <laughs> he can tell the difference than when I'm talking to somebody from work. And I think underneath all that, and even even though I can laugh about it, there was uh, there's pain in that and there's uh, shame in that. Because, you know, you, you deal with people that you have equal education to, you have in equal intellect to, and there it is. That sort of dismissive, mm, you're so country, as a negative, right? So, yeah, trying to reconcile out as a lifelong situation, like a lifelong ambition, right, of trying to to deal with it, to cover it up, to let it out, to be proud of it, to pull back some. Um, And that sort of push and pull, I think is, is uh, uh, for me now, now that I'm older, it's like, I I think it's a lifelong, I thought I would, it would be a point where it would be resolved, but I think it's a lifelong um, push and pull.
2: When I think about that shame that you talked about, it's also like, then I have to confront, especially going home, why are you ashamed of your brother or your sister? Because they way country than me because when well, my brother's in Alabama, but my sister, she's still where we grew up. And so it's thick, my entire family. And so, but I'm not, I'm not ashamed of them. And so it's kind of like, yeah, it's like, it's it's ancestral, it's familial. Like, and so it's so much is attached to, I think what's helping me get through the shame is remembering like, this my people, like this is my people's tongue. Um mm-hmm. so I just yeah, I'm glad listen, we need country representation. I'm happy. Absolutely. About
1: this <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We out here, right? We out here, we out here. <laughs> yes.
0: So I wanted to go back to your prose piece. Uh did if you will the picture. And you wrote about the struggle with dealing with your body changing and the outside world viewing your body as public property, almost. And so this was a similar experience for me and for what I've heard um, from a lot of other Black women when we go through puberty. And so you also had a poem about a wet nurse, and you kind of expanded on this lack of agency on our bodies in a historical perspective. So I know you talked about, you know, the black deacons at your church, but then also the white boys at your school. And so there's a bit of like racial and gender components to this. So I'm interested to hear more
1: of your thoughts concerning these violations towards our bodies. I think still the black, the black female body um, is the most disrespected. Like if you look at, if you look at old school writing, you go back and you look at Audrey Lord, or you go back and you look at um, Gail Jones, or you go back and you look at any number of of writers who were writing. And you look at um, what is it, Black-eyed Susans and Midnight Birds, and those sort of anthologies. You see recurring themes from um, the '60s and the '70s and the '80s, and it's still the same experience. You know, young girls Mm -hmm. that I talk to now in 2021 are still experiencing those those same things where, uh, you know, when you think about it, it happens and it becomes almost a, a sort of um, part of being a black girl, but it shouldn't be like, you know, when you think about it, how dare anyone to think that it's appropriate to touch someone who doesn't want to be touched. How can that be normal? How have we got to the point that that's been normalized for centuries? Of course, we know that that was, um The black body was currency uh, during slavery. But even now in 2021, we live in a society where what happens to young black girls' bodies, to black women's bodies, is okay. The rest of us, and of course it's not, but we are made to feel as if it's okay. If it's normal that a boy will... um, Slap a girl's behind when she walks by in the classroom, or grab a breast, or uh, you know, an old man in church will uh, hunch up behind you or something like that's not normal. And you know, I think we need to start empowering girls to call it out. And I know it's difficult to do. You know, it took me all these years, decades, to to sort of call it out. You know, the difference between Perfect Black and, and my other work is that I could, um, you know, there's always a thread of truth in my fiction, and I could, you know, put it in there and have a little thread of truth and then pile uh, fiction up on top of it. But uh, in this book, um, when you write memoir, when you write nonfiction, uh, even through a guise of poetry, it's like there. And one of my biggest fears with this book has been that, um members of my family will read it or people will read it from my hometown and they'll be like, Oh, she's talking about so-and-so. Oh, you know, she's talking about this person. And of course it's going to happen. And I am, I'm ready. Like in my head, you know, I'm saying, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to deal with this. I know that it's coming. But um, when the book came out and I saw sort of a rush of people, on social media, some of which I knew saying, ah, oh, I picked up mine today. And when particular people would post that on social media, I was like, oh, okay. Here we go. We're gonna have some conversations. And I I think that they'll many of them will probably be too afraid to talk about it from from their end. But I'm I want to it's time for us to be different. We've got to we've got to make some changes, uh, if not for ourselves because these things have already happened to us, but for the the next generation of girls. Like I have granddaughters now, I don't want a, an old man in church or a relative or a, a young black boy or or a white boy to feel like that he can put my hands on my granddaughter, and I don't want my granddaughter to feel like that she needs to accept that. Amen. And it's tough. guess uh, one of the things we don't talk about. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about it in our church communities. We don't talk about that in our sister circles. We don't talk about that anywhere. I'm so glad that you talked about this. Because um,
0: sometimes when I read things that have like black in the title, they tend to center blacks as hetero men. And, um, I was very happy that not only did you talk about your girlhood, you were honest and you were willing to talk about these things that so many people just want to pretend doesn't exist.
1: Yeah. And it took me a long time to come up on the title, but you know, the title is there uh, for a lot of reasons. It of course comes from one of the poems, um, um, that's, is my husband or loosely based on my husband, but, um. But I also thought about that word perfect. Like there no time in my life did I think that my country black fat self was perfect ever. And I'm hoping that young girls, young women who read this will will see that you know we are. Why can't why can't we be? Why aren't we perfect? That it can be, you know, even now um, that I'm older and having us new round of success with my work, like, we are not a monolith. So why can't an older, fat Black woman be perfect? Why can't a fat Black girl be perfect? Why can't a fat country Black girl be perfect and be a perfect representation of our community? Listen, I'm just
2: taking it all in. I think it's something about seeing someone who has like lived it like you, but, but knowing that I'm, I'm not too far removed from that, from that little girl. And yeah, I had so much shame around being, you know, I was the chubby girl. I was country. I was black and I had shame around being from Mississippi. I was just telling someone I, my dream was, you go to New York to be a writer, to be taken seriously, and you leave Mississippi behind you. Now, I ain't made it to New York yet, but <laughs> but I'm but I'm okay with that now. But I just remember like, yeah, nobody could have told, you couldn't have told me then that I could be perfect
1: Black. Mm-hmm. You could have never told me that. Yeah. And that's not to say that the Black girls and women who are deemed to be perfect, we need to get over that too. The ones that are deemed to be perfect, like it's okay to call them perfect but we're perfect over here too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not, it's a continuing of of blackness. It's not like one, one thing over, over another. Like it's, it's Mm -hmm. not. um, And I didn't get into that a lot, but you know, it has to do with colorism, uh, body image, again, uh, accents, all of that plays, plays into, into these ideas of who's black and who's black enough and who's perfect got the perfect body you see this sort of acted out too with uh if we're looking at celebrities you see that acted out through Lizzo Mm -hmm. like the stuff that she has to go through Mm -hmm. when everybody else you know not everybody but there's an other whole um spectrum of black female entertainer who's dressing a certain way and shaking their body too but people are like ah Lizzo needs to put some clothes on she needs to stop doing that same thing.
0: I know Danny talked about this earlier with the um, ancestral work. I really loved um, Praise Song for the Kitchen Ghost." It reminded me of how integral cooking is to both our heritage and our womanhood, kind of as Southern Black women. And so recently, I saw my grand—I saw my grandma. And every time I do, she always talks about cooking. And the last time I saw her, she made this pineapple. Um, pound cake and she was talking about her Aunt Bertha and she was like the way that she talked about that pound cake it was an experience because our Aunt Bertha isn't here anymore she can't have that experience anymore like that work is gone with her and so I think that's true for like a lot of the women in our family like they have some kind of signature dish um, and when they leave so does that dish and like no matter how hard we try we cannot recreate it um, mm-hmm. so something, a question I had. so my grandma explicitly told me to not share her recipes. So I was wondering, I tried <laughs> to get the pound cake recipe. <laughs> she did. And my girl was like, you cannot be telling people, uh, my recipes. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I was wondering, um, would your grandma approve of you sharing her recipes? I think so. Okay. I think
1: that so because we've got it covered, you know, like it's like, okay, I've written about it. It's got her name on it. It's got my name on it. So it's not, if if you're sharing it, then it's not theft. And I think that's what was one of the biggest things that they were afraid of. But, you know, food is culture. My next book is, you know, I'm sort of stealing from myself. So Pray Song for the Kitchen Ghost will appear in the next book. And that's the title of the next book because it's all about my matriarchal lineage and their recipes and, and black um, food ways, um, particularly black Appalachian food ways. Uh, And I'll go all the way back to Aggie again and all the way up to my mother and me and and even on to my daughters uh, to talk about food. But
2: um,
1: there is a way of paying, paying homage when you, when you, when you cook. Um, One of the things that I, still do especially around the holidays is I miss my grandmother so much and I sort of um, channel her in the kitchen right and sometimes I have a dress that belonged to her and I'll hang the dress up in the kitchen I have the audience can't see it but I have this um, old uh, recipe box that I had in high school that's rusted on the bottom and it's uh, flowers Uh, on it, a tin metal uh, box. And it's got her recipes in it um, that she hand wrote. And so I can hear her voice because they're not like recipes you'll find in a cookbook. They are just like, first, you want to do this. Then what you're going to need is to get you some this and get you some that. So they're like almost letters from her. And and I love those. And I um, am going to recreate them in um, that next book. But something funny about what you said um, made me laugh is because a woman, my grandmother was a, a domestic worker and cleaned up houses for white people in town. And so one of those women contacted me uh, and I always want to hear, both want to hear a story about my grandmother and I'm you know, another part of me is going, oh gosh, here this woman goes again. So she contacted me on uh, Facebook and she said, well, I want your address because I want to send you some things that has your grandmother's handwriting on it. And um, she sent me um, a recipe for my grandmother's jam cake. And I just cracked up because I'm like, that ain't granny's jam cake. But it was in my grandmother's handwriting and she had written it out all nice and presented it to her. And this woman and her whole family, this was their jam cake now that they make every year, been making for like 20 or 30 years. And I just said, okay, thank you. That's not my grandmother's recipe. (laughs) The one we have is her recipe. And I was like, okay, that's how you do it. All right. So she had tweaked it a little bit, gave them a whole different recipe, but I guess it was good because they're still making it. (laughs) Listen. Me and Leah
2: were just talking about this because I call and ask my grandma how to make some. And I'm just like, I just feel like it's something you're not telling me because this is not coming out the same. This is not
1: coming out the same. Well, you know, so much of it is not written down. Like um, because of the pandemic, um, like during the holidays, my daughters and and I cooked on Zoom. And um, it was so funny you know, we thought we would really miss each other and we did, but it was hilarious with us all on zoom. And my daughter was like, okay, mama, what am what am I doing? You know? And I, and I, I said, well, I'm going to email you the recipe. And so they email and then they get back on zoom and they hold their dish up and be like, what, what happened? My corn pudding, you know, look at it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just something in the ritual of it too, because, uh, my daughter, before we even got started, she said, oh, I'm tired. How you do this? <laughs> and I said, we ain't even got started yet. She said, I need to go lay down. I'm like, we ain't even started, girl. So, but the ritual uh, of it and the way you, you know, you might have it written down, but you're like, you know that it needs, you know, instead of two cups of flour, you know, it really needs two and a half or three. And uh, so if you stick to what's written down, it ain't going to turn out right. Or you know what it's supposed to look like. That's the problem when I'm cooking and trying to tell somebody how to do it. And uh, that was the problem on Zoom. I'd be like, hold it up to the <laughs> camera. And I'm like, what is that? It don't look right. And then she'd go back over a recipe. But um, yeah, and passing that on feels, uh, feels good too. That, um, you know, those roles... Uh, sort of continue because I remember my grandmother saying I'm gonna try this but I can't make it like mama did so she'd be talking about grandma Lily and then you think that each generation it feels like if they you when you hear them and probably like when you hear me that you feel like you lost something but we probably haven't you know I think a lot of it has to do with time like I feel like that the dishes my grandmother taught me to make it when I was ten or twelve years old, like I've probably done as well as I'm gonna do with them now. All these years later, it's like, okay, if I ain't got it now, I'm never gonna. This is as good as it's gonna as it's gonna get. And I think just that practice is uh, what makes you finally be able to perfect a recipe, or not. Like some of it, I think does does go with them. It's like, well, we ain't gonna have that no more. <laughs> Or have people try, and a lot of it becomes fun though for us, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's always um, us, right? It's always black families that I get so tickled at, and they're like, "Ah, she tried Aunt Bertha's potato salad. I'm not eating it." <laughs> <laughs> or you know, who fixed that macaroni and
2: cheese? Uh, uh, uh. No, that's that's so true, and I'm I'm right now my the past holiday, my grandma and my cousin were talking about my great grandmother who I didn't get to meet. She made sweet potato cobbler. Mm. And I've been thinking about that, like, cause they were talking, the way they were talking about it was like, I really missed out. And so now I've been sitting over here thinking about how I want to try to make it, but I might be too embarrassed to take it home because <laughs> I know, I already know it's just going to be nothing but disappointment. <laughs> And it might be good. It's just like, it ain't like, you know, grandmamas. It can't, can't nobody. And I like what you say. I think it ends up being just different. Like, if we cook for our children or nieces and nephews or whatever, they'll probably think the same thing about our food. Like,
1: mm-hmm. they can't
2: cook it like my TT. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, and I don't get nervous. You know, how to cook for my kids or for my immediate family, I don't get nervous. But if my cousins or somebody, if somebody older is going to be there, and then I'm like, oh gosh, and they're like, who made the such and such, and then I'm quiet. Like... And but then if they say, oh, it's good, I'm like, oh, I did. It's mine. <laughs> and then if they don't like it, you just be quiet. And go, mm-hmm. I don't know.
2: <laughs> this is more just like a comment on your uh, Bones poem. I love that poem. And it had me thinking about my family who migrated to Chicago on both sides. It's so ironic. My mom and daddy met each other in Chicago and both of their families are from Mississippi. Um, Meanwhile, he lived on the South side. She lived on the West side and they ended up finding each other. Um, And just kind of like those themes of like running from the South, but then you kind of running into something else. I was interested in what you were thinking about from that poem because my, you know, my grandma's story was good. But, you know, on other sides of my family, I feel like they came into Chicago and they were still living in poverty, still in hyper-police communities and, and that kind of thing. And so it's like, and then you also kind of get this disconnect from your roots and stuff. So, yeah, I just kind of wanted to... Like, generally, like, what were you thinking about when you wrote that book?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about about history, like my own family's history and our, co- our collective history about them, the great migration and what it meant. Just like, you know, when you think about integration and what it meant, like, it's like so many points in our history, like we're trying to gain something and, and we're also losing something. Uh, every time we, every inch of progress means a loss for us of some kind, like like leaving the Jim Crow South um, meant that you left family behind, you left uh, culture behind, you left a firm establishment behind. But like you said, you, you move and then you're in a city and there may be um, particular freedoms that you've gained or particular jobs that you can get, but you still had police brutality. You still had racism. Um, you had um, the systems were larger um, where the systemic racism came from. The systems were larger, I think, and more more visible uh, than they were in the small towns in the South. So I, I was trying to get at that uh, a little bit in that piece, uh, trying to unpack that a little bit.
2: We can't read the whole poem, but I highlighted so much. But this particular stanza. We don't forget how to talk to rivers, to be thankful of rain, to wrap ourselves in green aprons. Now, one funny thing this reminded me of is how on Twitter people say if you can smell the rain, you country. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the first time I said that to somebody that wasn't from the South, like you. What you can smell? You can smell it. You can smell when the rain is coming. I just. Mm-hmm that hit me I was like I know that's right when I, when
1: I read that stanza well, you know, I think it's it's kind of subtle in the book but one of the things that my last two books in in um the birds of opulence too like I think that because of all the fears um that we've had to go through about the, I meet so many black people that are afraid of the woods and stuff now and we have reason to be like there's history there too of like uh, of the woods but i think that um that nature has the capacity for healing for us like it's it's ours really we need to reclaim those natural spaces uh for our own healing now you know i'm saying that in a broad way and then uh almost died when a snake ran across my foot in my back in my garden last week but you know <laughs> sometimes i feel like i'm revoking my country card and i'm like okay give it back i'm I'm cool but um but i think that that nature does have the capacity to heal and mm-hmm. and that's something that we need to sort of get back to how and however we can
0: yeah i have snakes in my backyard
1: too <laughs> My husband, whose city is always saying, uh, "How are you a country girl?" and I'm like, "That's my one thing. I can take. I can take the other things. I'm like fighting with the squirrels, you know, whatever's yeah. trying to take over my garden. Like I'm cool, but when the snake ran across my foot, and, uh, <laughs> I was in the house for about three or four days just looking at the garden. <laughs> like, okay the tomatoes are doing good all right (laughs) there was a snake
0: that went past my front yard I was like oh my god but eventually I was like I just gotta go cut my grass
2: (laughs) I think this was like a fabulous discussion Mm -hmm. I I'm thankful for this book I'm I'm just thankful for you I can't wait to read the rest of your work. I'm particularly excited to read Blackberries, Blackberries. Mm-hmm. I've had that book on hold at Square Books all summer because I haven't had no money, but <laughs> I'm going to go get it when I get paid. <laughs> I, because I, I read the description and I was like, ooh, I need to read this. Um, and so, yeah, well, before we end, any final
1: thoughts from everybody? I just want to thank y'all for for having me on. This has been a pleasure and uplifting to sort of be in in your sister circle on on your podcast. <laughs> so I'm I'm excited to be here.
0: Yes, I want to thank you for being here. I really, really loved this book. It was beautiful. It was amazing. I love how you. Talked about the women in your family, your heritage, the South, food, uh, everything. Everything was beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. That was such a beautiful interview. I really love talking to Crystal. So, Danny, I'm wondering, what are you still holding on to from this interview?
2: I'm still holding on first to our discussion of shame around being country and having an accent, Um, being from Mississippi, being from places that are, you know, not seen as like the good place to be from Um, and how our, our tongue, our native tongues are a representation of our lineage. So being country is connected to my, connects me to my ancestors and connects me to my family. Um, and then the inspiration for the title, like the audacity of declaring blackness is perfect. I love the point she made about it being a continuum. Um, perfect black doesn't just mean one thing. It's fat black country girls can become you know perfect black um and I just I love the way this book honors her ancestors but also feels like a love letter to southern black women reminding us that like we're perfect regardless and all our countryness our fatness our blackness our nappy headedness like whatever like we perfect um so I'm just thank you crystal like oh my gosh I'm we it's Yeah, a blessing. Like that interview and talking to her was a blessing. I
0: agree. And I definitely agree with the title, Perfect Black, when she said that. Um, (laughs) But I love her talking about girlhood and I love her like really coming to task when it comes to kind of the harm that Black girls face, the harm that Black Um, women continue to face have always faced in this country and it was it was sobering when she was talking about like you know it hurts her feelings to to say like oh these things happened to me as a black girl in the 1970s and they're still happening to black girls today Um, and she's like I don't want this to continue to happen for black girls in the future so yeah that was a lot, but it was very, very necessary, very much appreciated. I also love <laughs> when we talked about um, food. I know when I read Perfect Black, she was... <laughs> she, was talking about cabbage and sausage and I had never had cabbage and sausage before but when I had read that book it was like the third time it was referenced to me and I'm like I'm gonna figure out how to make cabbage and sausage and I didn't it was delicious and I'm
2: probably gonna make it again soon um can I get a recipe because I'm ready to make it I've had it before by somebody that could throw down, so I'm like <laughs> I want it now, you making me hungry for it i didn't
0: I didn't do it. I didn't do anything hard. I just did onions, half a head of cabbage, and then a pound of hot country sausage, salt and pepper. Just fry it. That's it. It was good
2: with some cornbread. we gonna talk <laughs> so. She mentioned this, and she's mentioned it into in interviews um so this ain't like a secret, but she's working on a i think it's gonna be like a memoir cookbook you mm-hmm. y'all better go get it like I can't wait until we get more information about it, but go get it and go get like her other books and read them as well, like yes, blackberry blackberries have been on my like to read list forever. I'm so excited to read it one day <laughs> mhm. But, yeah, it was a blessing. And, and you mentioned the food. I didn't even, I was, it's so much from the interview that mm-hmm. fed us. But, like, listen, country Black folk, one thing we're going to do is eat, period. Like, and eat good. <laughs> Okay, you not going over to somebody... (laughs) When we get together, food... I think with Black culture in general, food is so much at the center of everything we Mm -hmm. do. Somebody die, we eating. Mm -hmm. We eating. We having a fish fry the day before the funeral. And we might have, you know, people probably going to get together drinking and eating after the funeral. That's what we do. When somebody get married, it's going to be a fish fry either before or after the wedding. Like somewhere. Or somebody going to put some food on the grill or be at somebody's house. And so... Man that book's so southern It's so southern and rich In love like That's somebody who loves Black people and it breathes Through the work period So Anyway I'm about to get on a soapbox But <laughs> we, we I'm saying we got lucky I hope people remember like we got To have Crystal Wilkinson on our podcast And You love to see it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but well, did you have anything else before we log off? Um,
0: not really. Just if you haven't, please go by perfect black, support the work of a perfect black woman.
2: Amen. <laughs> hey, well, if you like this episode, you can like, rate, and review who do plant mamas on Apple Podcasts. If anything from the show resonated with you, make sure to share it with us on social media.
0: You can find us on Twitter at Hoodie Plants and Instagram at Plant Mama. Stay tuned for our next episode. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all.